Hello. Hello, hello, hello. And welcome to Useful Idiots. I'm Katie Halper, one of your hosts. And I am the other host, Aaron Maté. Happy New Year, everybody. Happy New Year, Katie. Happy New Year, everybody. And Happy New Year, Aaron. That's a good order because we put the guests and viewers and listeners like you first before we put each other. So we take that, so that whole moment, that whole moment of just wishing a new year to everyone. Then we do it to the co-hosts. Not every show does that. Most most shows are much more self-obsessed. Not this show, which makes us the best show in the world because we're not self-obsessed with how amazing we are. The least self-centered show on YouTube. That's right. Yeah. That's us. We are, yeah. which makes us the number one show. So if you join us at usefulidiots.substack.com, you get all kinds of bonus content. You get our extended interviews. And you also get access to the absurd arena where you can interact with fellow useful idiots and ask us questions. So Wilson, what do we have this week from the absurd arena? Well, every useful idiot should go check out the absurd arena because I posted your, some would say eerily accurate predictions for 2022 that all came exactly true. And now we're looking at our craziest predictions for 2023. So we want you to head over to the Absurd Arena and tell us what your predictions are for this year. And now, Katie and Aaron, please enter the Absurd Arena and let us know your crazy predictions for 2023. Aaron, you want to go first? So my prediction for 2023, I'm stealing this from Michael Tracy on Twitter, who um, observed that Republicans are in turmoil over the House speakership. And on the first round of voting, as we're recording this, they denied Kevin McCarthy the job. And so Michael Tracy predicted that, in fact, Volodymyr Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, will become the universally uh, approved by Congress next House speaker. So congratulations to President slash House Speaker Zelensky on becoming the new House speaker in 2023. All right. That's a good one. Okay, my prediction for 2023 is a useful idiot-centric prediction, which is that we're going to have Aaron's favorite member of Congress on the show. Adam Schiff? Nope. (laughs) Adam Schiff? Mm -hmm. Uh, Okay. Not Adam Schiff. Um, Are they a Democrat or Republican? Republican. Republican, really? Okay. Oh, I think I know who you're talking about. It's someone who I have praised on the show. A lot, actually, uh, because of her positions on Ukraine proxy war and her support for pardoning Julian Assange. I think you're thinking Marjorie Taylor Greene. That I am. Marjorie Taylor Greene. Yeah. We got to manifest it. Yeah. We'll have to do good cop, bad cop, because uh, there's so much, you know, that she has said. I I have to admit, I do agree with her on with, you know, as as I just mentioned. But also, as we've also pointed out, we're equal opportunity here. So she said some horribly bigoted things, too. And you'll you'll have to uh, carry carry the reins on on that one, Katie. I mean, I don't think she'd accept us as Americans. We're not. She's a Christian. She identifies as a Christian nationalist. Now you may pass, Aaron, as <laughs> not Jewish. You've passed as Latinx uh, in the past, so she may think that you're a fellow Christian. Right. Yeah, I doubt that. I doubt that. Once you hear me talk, I think it's pretty hard to sustain. But anyway, listen, that's a great prediction, and I'm looking forward to welcoming Marjorie Taylor Greene. Yeah. On two slutty, it's in 2023. Yeah. That's and that's to one. all the haters out there who think that Aaron's a big fan of hers. Uh, he's not. It's just like when we damn the liberal media by pointing out that Tucker Carlson is talking about something that no one else is talking about that doesn't make Tucker Carlson good. That makes everyone else really bad. That's my lesson of the of the day. It's a good lesson, and it's a lesson we'll probably be have to constantly be evoking in 2023 as uh, things don't seem to be changing very much. 
All right. So let's get to our four food groups. What do we have for Democrats suck? For Democrats suck, let's just start out with a video that was provided to us by uh, The Lever, which is the excellent news website run by uh, David Sirota and some other great journalists. It used to be called Daily Poster. It's now called The Lever. And here's a video that he made that the Lever, New- that Lever News made, and it accompanies a um, a petition, quoting this petition, to leaders in Congress and Transportation Secretary Buttigieg, for months, state law enforcement officials of both parties have been sounding alarms about airlines mistreating their customers. But because of a four decades old federal preemption law, those officials cannot take action to protect consumers, even as airlines have benefited from billions of dollars of government support, and even as federal regulators have refused to use their power. That can and must change right now. We request that you pass new bipartisan legislation repealing that law and empowering Americans and their state regulators to take action against airlines when they abuse consumers. So uh, what does this mean? This means that uh, Secretary Buttigieg would impose fines on airlines that delay or cancel flights for reasons that have nothing to do with weather. Uh, And he would use his existing power to make sure airlines provide full and prompt refunds when they cancel flights. Let's take a look at this video that they released, which accompanies this petition. Do you think this issue will be sorted in time for the holidays? I think it's going to get better by the holidays. I wasn't anticipating a nightmare, but it became a nightmare. It did. 16,000 canceled flights. Passengers forced to sleep at airports, luggage scattered from city to city. Again, your bags will not be here. Four months before Southwest's mass cancellations, 38 state attorneys general from both political parties sent a joint letter to congressional leaders explicitly calling out Buttigieg's transportation department for failing to respond and provide appropriate recourse for frustrated airline flyers. Buttigieg's agency has continued to do almost nothing to prevent all of this from happening again. He hasn't fined any of America's largest airlines for unpaid refunds or mass flight cancellations, despite thousands of consumer complaints. We've seen a lot of improvement from this summer when I called on the airlines to step up their game. How many of Senator Sanders' Uh, calls to action are actively being considered. Well, we've seen a lot of improvements, especially with uh, uh, airline delays and cancellations. Passengers are sleeping in airport hallways. The airlines received billions of dollars in bailout money during COVID and aid during COVID. Their systems needed to be upgraded for some time, and the airline knew that. It's just that they diverted their funds elsewhere. Should Southwest have known that these types of delays would occur? In my opinion, yes. Our uh, scheduling IT infrastructure is outdated and can't handle the massive cancellations that had to happen that day when the weather event occurred. It can't keep track of where pilots are, fly tents are, and airplanes are. And they said they're you know working on it, but of course the investment wasn't made. I'm truly sorry. We are the first airline to be able to reinstate our dividend, and not only that, but reinstate it in full. Thousands of people stranded and desperate to get home. What's going on? Why are you selling something that you're not providing? I press the airlines to enhance their customer service plans to do it in writing. How can travelers have faith in the airline? And to be frank, have faith in your department as a watchdog if these problems keep happening. 
So basically what we're seeing is that Pete Buttigieg is refusing to do his job. It is his duty to hold the airlines accountable. And uh, he's not doing that. He's refusing to do that. And what's also funny is watching these like blue and on libs on Twitter defending uh, Pete Buttigieg and really mad at David Sirota for actually calling him out on this. But we saw this happen last year. Nothing was done. Bernie proposed fines last year. Nothing was done. And states attorneys generals are actually like begging the feds to regulate. And uh, this isn't coming out of nowhere. Uh, it's just totally indefensible. What's interesting is that Southwest flyers oh, tend to be working class. So, of course, they don't care about those people who they see as riffraff and powerless. Here's a suggested slogan for people to judge as defenders. How about uh, don't judge the booty? Don't judge the booty. I like what that. We think. think. Yeah. Stay away from but, the booty. <laughs> but um, I mean, what else to expect? I mean, this is a guy who was a former uh, staffer at, at the consulting firm McKinsey who was associated with it. He denies that he was involved in this. But at the time that he worked for McKinsey, he did work for a Canadian supermarket chain at the time when they were caught up in a bread price fixing scandal. Now, he denies that he had anything he had anything to do with the um, rising cost of bread at this uh, supermarket chain. But he was working for McKinsey when they were working for the supermarket chain. And so he does ha have at least have a record of being associated with ignoring consumers' basic right. needs and, and price gouging. Right. And now, Aaron, that's why I'm so appreciative to have a Canadian co-host, because you really have your finger on the pulse of what <laughs> happens in Canadian supermarkets in a way that I don't think I do. Uh, I only first heard about this scandal when Pete Buttigieg was running for president. But yeah, uh, maybe yes, perked up your ears more. I certainly did. Oh, I was outraged. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's, it, it, it was outraged. a big scandal. Yeah, um, it, it was. It was very serious. Like people who people who couldn't afford it uh, were going without bread because it was it was too expensive. Um, right. As a right. result of the great work of people to judge's colleagues at McKinsey, right. if not people to judge himself. I mean, I think it speaks to a larger problem that Buttigieg really kind of personifies with this this the myth of technocracy, this myth of not being able to do something and leaving it to the experts. And that's what Buddha judge and his defenders rely on this idea. Like, of course, he can't do anything about this. This is just a question of what happens at airlines, or this is a question of the company. And no, there are always things to do. And something that people forget is like, even when there aren't things to do now, in this case, there are things for him to do, like it's within his purview to do them. But I think in general, lots of times people hide behind the excuse of what can you do? Our hands are tied and enough political pressure uh, or the first of all, the will. Uh, people always can do things. You know, when there's a will, there's a way that is an expression for a reason. But it's a good reminder that powerful people will hide behind that excuse when there are things to be done. And when they don't do it, we have to use our power if we can to make sure that they do or to make it painful for them to not do it. But so many people are convinced by this. There's nothing we can do argument. Very true. Very true. What do we got for Republican suck? So for Republican suck, we're going to check in on uh, Congress member George Santos. He is a, a Republican Congress member from New York. And while we were on break, Katie, for you study, it's over the holidays. Uh, George Santos was caught up in a whole series of scandals, caught fabricating his resume, caught pretending to be Jewish, to which he defended himself by saying that I'm Jewish, not uh, Jewish. So one of the things that happened was he went on Fox News with Tulsi Gabbard. And got eviscerated. So let's watch a little clip of that. The results that people are looking yeah, well, for I are called into question when you tell 
blatant lies, not embellishments. And this is this is, I think, one of the biggest concerns, Congressman elect, is that you don't really seem to be taking this seriously. You've apologized. You said you've made mistakes, but you've outright lied. A lie is not an embellishment on a resume. You said you worked at Goldman Sachs and Citigroup, but they've said we've got no record of this guy working for us. You've said you've gone to and graduated from these universities, but they've said, well, we've got no record of that. These are blatant lies, and it calls into question how your constituents and the American people can believe anything that you may say when you are standing on the floor of the House of Representatives supposedly fighting for them. That's the real issue here. Well, look, I, and I, I agree with what you're saying. And as I stated and I continue, we can debate my my resume and how I worked with firms such as Goldman. Is it and debatable or is it long. just false? But, uh, no, is it's it very debatable. No, no, it's not false at all. It's it's debatable. I can I can sit down and explain to you what you can do in private equity, in, in capital intro, via servicing limited partners and general partners. And we can have this discussion that's going to go way above the American people's head. But that's not what I campaigned on. Ow. I campaigned on delivering results wow. for the American people by, by lowering inflation. I can sit down. And if you want to have that discussion, I'd be glad to, Tulsi, to explain that to you C and Congress make sure that we, we, we settle the score. So first of all, he says, I agree with you when Tulsi Gabbard raises all these uh, issues that she has with Santos, including him lying about his record. And then he wants to have a debate about his record and whether or not what he did constitutes working with certain firms like Goldman Sachs. And he's like, I'd love to sit down with you and have that debate. Well, who's going to like, like what, 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 like what would that debate look like? We're going to debate whether or not you work for somebody. Is it going to be nationally televised? Yeah, it's weird. It's like he seems to be trying to pivot from. Uh, I lied to, well, I could still give you good advice based at, like financial advice as if that makes his lie about where he worked. Okay. Do you know what I mean? Like, well, okay, maybe I didn't work there, but you know what? At the end of the day, this is just about being a good financial whiz. And I can and also, that. and also it would go over the American people's heads. Oh my if I God. Tried to explain it. That, that was like the biggest, I couldn't believe he said that. That's just like one Oh one. That's just a no-no. You never admit how your your contempt for voters. You hide it. That's how you get elected. Especially yes. Republicans are especially good at that. Oh yes, yes, yeah. And you know his first day in office coincides with this dramatic showdown amongst the Republicans over who will be House Speaker. And as we're recording this, Kevin McCarthy has, has just been denied uh, his bid for being the House Leader because um, a number of Republicans defected because they want to extract concessions from him and he's not giving in. And by the time this is broadcast, that will likely be resolved, but who knows? Uh, this could be a, a prolonged struggle. But here is a shot of Santos doing his part in this dispute on the House floor. The people who are just uh, listening, he's sitting there on his phone and yawning. No one's talking to him. So that's George Santos, uh, you know, playing his role on the House floor. Doesn't look like he's very enthused about this uh, about this uh, speakership struggle that's going on. But I bet he's maybe a little bit relieved that this probably takes some attention off of him because he's been right. at the center of this firestorm. And now with everybody fighting over who will be House Speaker, that takes uh, some of the pressure off of him, I think. Well, apparently things aren't going so well for him because apparently he showed up with his uh, without his wedding ring and his husband is nowhere to be seen, uh, mm. which I understand if it turned out that you were married to someone who was 
a pathological liar and you may not want to be by his side. Um, but, you know, to give him credit, his lies are very well-rounded. Like he he's an equal opportunity liar. He said that his mom was an executive when she was actually uh, a house cleaner. He said, again, the Jewish thing. He said he works at places he didn't work. He said he had never committed any crimes, but he also admitted that he stole used a stolen checkbook in Brazil. He said he was from different places. He's actually Brazilian. Anyway, he seems like a he seems like kind of a fun guy, though. It'd be fun having a conversation with him. Yeah. I mean, uh, look, Santos, I think, got caught being a fraud for really, you know, stupid things, like a very, very trivial things. The smart way to be a fraud in Washington is to do it like, you know, many Democrats do it, where they pretend to be progressive, but then always right. vote for anti-progressive politics. And, uh, you know, like one of Santos's biggest critics, uh, critics is Richie Torres, who campaigned as a progressive, but has become this like complete uh, hawk when it comes to Israel, for example. Oh, yeah. That's how you do it. Not that, even that's always been terrible in Israel. Yeah. But let's I take a look more at this Republican fight because it's interesting because some Republicans are using their leverage to extract concessions uh, from from McCarthy. They're being attacked by members of their own party who are very upset because for them, this is very, very embarrassing. But it, it is interesting to think about what's happening in light of the, the debate over forced the vote a few years ago when progressives asked the squad to use their leverage to deny Nancy Pelosi the House speakership unless she allowed to vote on Medicare for all. And everybody was telling them, no, we can't do that because if we do – uh, you know, Kevin McCarthy could become the speaker. Well, now we're seeing a situation where a number of House Republicans are doing exactly that, except they're doing it for their own agenda and certainly not for Medicare for all. But it does show, I think, that members of Congress have leverage if they're able right. to use it. And let's look at one reaction from a Republican at uh, who's angry at the Republicans who are using their leverage. This is Matt Brooks. He's with the Republican Jewish Committee. He says, when all the dust settles, I hope the infidels pay a real price for all the chaos and problems they're causing. Actions should have consequences. So these people are infidels for using their leverage. And that's someone from the Republican Jewish Coalition? Yeah. Interesting word choice. I kind of like it. It's almost solidaristic. You don't hear that term enough in general, and certainly not from Jews. It's interesting. Interesting, yeah. Some offenses are so egregious they have to uh, be the work of infidels, and that's yeah. apparently the case here with Kevin McCarthy. Call that for what they are infidels. Yeah. Yeah. So, but I, I say, you know, even if I don't agree with their agenda, proper to the infidels for at least using their leverage and showing progressives maybe what they could do in the future if they wanted to actually get something done. Just a thought. Right. So for isn't that weird? I have a story that uh, is interesting. It's about Donald Trump Jr. And he is selling uh, his own Bible line. So let's just go to the video of him uh, pitching this product. With American Judeo-Christian values under attack, there could be no better time than to re-up our commitment to America and to the Christian values that this country was founded on. Go check out the We the People Bible, made in America, printed in America, assembled in America. You're going to love it. And I think the people in your life probably need it too. And uh, just so you know, We the People Bible, uh, we are proud to introduce the We the People Bible. This King James Bible is ideal for the patriots who believe it is time to give America back to God and features copies of America's founding documents by now. So it's a combination of American history compilation 
and the Bible. And I like how he bragged about how it's made in America, uh, just like Jesus Christ, of course, the great JC, as American as they get. And also, you may have noticed that Donald Trump Jr. is sounding particularly like his father in that he's really leaning into his father's cadence. And he's also using his hands in a very Donald Donald one way, which is probably intentional, probably good for sales. Yeah, that was a stunning uh, impression of his father. And uh, I, you know, I thought Donald Jr. had his own identity. He was sort of like an outdoorsman. Remember that whole thing? Like there was pictures of him hunting animals mm-hmm. and he was supposed to be the, the Trump who's like one with nature. You know, he loves nature because yeah. he loves to hunt. Well, kind but, of, uh, loves, yeah, kind of loves nature, kind of hates it, kills a lot of animals. But yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So this is him sounding more and more like his uh, like his dad. But what I love about American politics is this ritual where so many people who have not spent a day of their life in church or caring about religion have to pretend as if they're you know pious, devout uh, followers of God. And this is pretty much been a thing since Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter actually was a, he's a, he's an actual Christian. He really, you know, follows the scripture closely, you know, is a follower of, of Jesus' teachings in terms of serving the poor and helping right. the needy. Habitat actually, for humanity and all yeah, that. Yeah. yeah, he's actually applied that to his life. But everybody else since then has had to pretend as if they're, you know, God-fearing uh, Christians. Like Bill Clinton did it, um, you know, like whereas Bill Clinton was, meanwhile, his only interest, I mean, his main, one of his main interests was, just being a sleazeball uh, right. and philandering, um, and philandering. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, uh, and George W. Bush too, obviously also put on a, put on a Texas accent. So, but my favorite is the Trump family because there's no one who's more atheist, I think than the Trump family, but yet because they're Republicans now, they all have to pretend as if they right. found God and right. Don Jr. is the latest to join the fold. Yeah. I mean, I like the callback for, uh, to the whole sacred father-son relationship that we see between Jesus Christ and the Lord and <laughs> Donald Trump Jr. and Donald Trump OG. I didn't see Jesus trying to to speak like his father, though. I think Jesus had his no, own voice. Didn't. Yeah, you're right. I would encourage John Jr. to follow the same path. Follow Jesus' path. Find your own voice. Yeah, yeah follow Jesus' path, not your father's. <laughs> well, he's definitely following his father's in terms of uh, as being a... Huckster. Uh, uh, a huckster. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so weird indeed. What do we got for Isn't That Terrible? For Isn't That Terrible, we have uh, this story from the UK on how a walrus interrupted a New Year's celebration. So this is the headline. Town's New Year's Eve fireworks canceled due to masturbating walrus. And let's go Wait, to the video. Happens. A wandering walrus has appeared in front of locals and tourists in a Yorkshire resort. The Arctic walrus is believed to be Thor, the same animal that was spotted on the Hampshire coastline earlier this month. So cute and chubby. Local wildlife experts have asked people not to disturb the creature, saying he was taking a break in Scarborough and will move on in a few days once he is rested enough to continue his journey north. But that video seems to bury the lead. It does. Uh, This is from a story. It says, in what has to be the greatest New Year's Eve story we've ever seen, A town in the UK was forced to cancel its fireworks display because of the presence of a masturbating walrus. The walrus Thor has been raising eyebrows ever since he turned up. He was cordoned off by local authorities and was reportedly spotted masturbating during his time relaxing on the harbor. So the masturbating walrus ruined New Year's for these uh, these unfortunate residents uh, of of Yorkshire. But also kind of cool. That's cool. I'm really really touched that no pun intended 
but I'm really touched that uh, he was allowed to continue touching himself. But I mean, I am, I am touched that they prioritize his comfort and pleasure over human endeavors. I think that's important. I'm touched. I'm also touched that they let him touch himself. Yeah. All of our hearts have been touched by this. Uh, while it was touching. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He's so cute. Isn't he cute? Don't you want to cuddle They're- up with him? I mean, not while he's doing that. I, I, yeah, no, I don't. Yeah, whether he's masturbating or not, I, I don't. Oh no, don't. not even the non-masturbating version <laughs> no, of him. Oh, I think no. he's so cute. I want to snuggle with him. <laughs> I love animals so much, but I think that's good. It's a sex-positive response. Sex-positive, walrus-positive response to a masturbating. Very, very sex-positive. Very sex. Very walrus masturbatory. Yeah. Positive response. Yes. Yeah. All right, we have a great guest this week. Ivan Kachanovsky is a Ukrainian Canadian political scientist who teaches at the University of Ottawa. And Ivan has done a lot of research on Ukraine and the Ukraine war. And he's here to talk to us about it. Ivan Kachanowski, thank you for joining us. And thank you for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be on your show. First, let me ask you just to introduce yourself to our audience. Talk about your background. Uh, you are from Ukraine and the kind of re- research that you conduct into your country of origin. So uh, I am uh, currently a professor at the uh, School of Political Studies at the University of Ottawa in Canada. And uh, I specialize in uh, research about Ukraine and Ukrainian politics and conflicts since I wrote my dissertation on this topic in the United States. Uh, uh, at George Mason University, um, and uh, since I uh, held various positions in other universities, at the University of Toronto, at the Library of Congress, at the Kluge Center for Scholars, at uh, State University of New York in Potsdam, and at uh, Harvard University, at the uh, uh, center which specializes in uh, Russian and Eurasian studies. And I originally from Ukraine, and I. Uh, uh, still uh, follow the conflict in Ukraine professionally and personally because uh, I have uh, relatives in Ukraine, I have friends in Ukraine, one of whom is actually missing. Uh, He was in Mariupol and uh, there's no information from him since the start of the war. But um, for me, uh, I am doing research as a scholar. So I'm uh, doing this research for a very long time. And this is actually, for me, it's important issue to research, in particular, this war, because I warned about this possibility of such conflict. And unfortunately, it happened. And now I'm uh, quite skeptical about the future of Ukraine because of this war and other developments which take place. Do you have any uh, speculation as to what happened to your friend and uh, who who took him? Uh, he was in Mariupol. He he actually uh, got also a PhD in political science in the United States, and we communicated very frequently before the war over Skype. And there is no information since. And I asked um, my other alumni friends from uh, university, which we attended in Prague, and uh, there is no information about him. No, so I'm not sure what happened. Um, I hope uh, this uh, might be like uh, kind of uh, he might move away or something, but uh, just lost computer or something. But uh, again, there is no information, and this is uh, was epicenter of the conflict for a very long time, and and this is again uh, there are a lot of uh, people guilty in Mariupol, so I'm, I'm not sure what happened. I hope everything would be fine eventually. Did he have any political views that would make him a target for somebody? 
No, he was a philosopher from Western Ukraine, like me. Uh, so we, we, he was from Chernivtsi region. He's uh, from Chernivtsi region, but his family was living and working in Azovstal area and uh, in this Azovstal plant and near the basically uh, epicenter of the fighting. And and uh, he did not have any, like, uh, he was not involved in any political views. He was advisor to Ukrainian parliament, U.S. program, and he was just professor recently at uh, university in Afghanistan, in Kabul, U.S. University, American University in Afghanistan, in Kabul, and also in Iraq, uh, American University in Iraq. So that's why uh, uh, kind of this is a very... Uh, important development because and a very kind of unusual development because he he was in all these uh, different areas and I hope he might have moved to other like location maybe Libya or Syria, or Syria which might be safer compared to UK right now or compared to Mariupol so this is like another possibility which uh, I hope um, eventually would um, materialize because uh, again very this is a very tough situation otherwise because my um, Relatives, they live in Western Ukraine, which is not, and friends live in Western Ukraine, in Kyiv city, where I studied also for my undergraduate degree, and uh, they are safe. Uh, and this is, uh, I think, also a very big difference between different regions of Ukraine in terms of the war and conflict and impact on people there. So let me ask you about one of the most recent developments. There's just this uh, Ukrainian uh, strike on a Russian position. Dozens of Russian soldiers killed. Uh, this is in Donetsk. They're calling this one of the deadliest, if not the deadliest, Ukrainian attack on Russian soldiers so far. Uh, what do you make of what happened here? Russia is being criticized by its own people for putting these troops in danger by placing them in such a vulnerable position. What do you know about what happened? And, and, and do you think that this will make a difference overall in the war? Uh, I follow all the developments, uh, including this latest strike on in Makeevka in Ki- in Donbass uh, by the Ukrainian forces, and all other recent developments and uh, developments in start of the war. And this is uh, one of the largest uh, strikes in terms of impact and in, in terms of casualties by Ukrainian forces uh, in in this war. And uh, according to Russian Ministry of Defense, they admitted. I think as far as I remember, more than 60 or even maybe more than 80 people killed, uh, Russian soldiers killed, but uh, there are reports that there are much bigger number of casualties in this building, which was uh, actually a kind of academic building, which was used for uh, professional education and which was totally destroyed. destroyed. And uh, so there is a lot of criticism in Russia about deployment of uh, the military there, along with um, weapons and along, along with ammunition, which Im- impacted after uh, after Ukrainian uh, missile strike, which which was using, I think, uh, this US uh, uh, this US uh, HIMARS system, which is a precise system and launch uh, range system. But this uh, not going to have a uh, like a decisive impact on the war in Donbass and in in war between Russia and Ukraine because actually the other developments, there were similar strikes by Russian forces with similar impact, which almost never reported by the media, Western media. And just recently, uh, just um, I think yesterday and today, there was a large uh, Russian strike on um, Ukrainian military, uh, military in Dushkivka, in also in Donbass, and there are reports of a very large number of casualties, again, uh, of Ukrainian forces, 
uh, at least 100 people killed or military uh, personnel killed in this area and also uh, reports of military equipment destroyed including uh, US HEMAR systems um, there were similar attacks before in which uh, in Desna, in Chernihiv region, and uh, uh, in Lviv region, where, the, where casualties in Kirovograd, in Kirovograd, where casualties were around 100 people killed or even more, uh, military personnel killed or even more, including um, foreign volunteers. So in this case, this is uh, uh, just, um, I think, biggest uh, impact on uh, Russian forces, but it's not going to have decisive effect because there were similar uh, strikes on Ukrainian positions and Ukrainian forces, and uh, but they are obviously not reported or they are minimized or misrepresented as uh, civilian uh, casualties because uh, Ukrainian forces also, like Russian forces, they often also use uh, civilian infrastructure to position like schools or, or uh, hotels or any other um, civilian business to position military forces. You said that you warned that this is a situation that you studied and that you warned about. What is it that you warned about and why didn't people listen? So this is uh, why I wrote my dissertation on this uh, topic in uh, in uh, 2001 and defended the dissertation on this topic because Ukraine at the time was one of the most regionally divided countries. And in all elections and uh, different public opinion polls since Ukrainian independence in 1991, which I analyzed, there was a split between um, pro-Western and uh, pro-nationalist politicians and and people support in different elections, in particular in Western Ukraine, in Kyiv city, and uh, to a lesser extent in Central Ukraine, and uh, split in in uh, Eastern and and. Uh, southern regions of uh, Russia, of Ukraine, uh, which were more pro-Russian oriented and uh, tried to support Russia, close relations with Russia, integration with Russia. And in particular in Crimea and Donbass, there were separatist views, which had the majority support even at that time. And I analyzed this in my in my dissertation, which I later published as a book. So there was like Basically, uh, uh, how to say it's power. Okay, this was a very explosive situation, and uh, this uh, similar situation was in Moldova. In Moldova, uh, suffered uh, basically a civil war and breakup of country of Moldova after a secession of Transnistrian region, which was pro-Russian region, but also included a lot of Ukrainians living in uh, this region. And so, similar situation would uh, could have happened in uh, in Ukraine, and this is what I was wondering about when I uh, wrote my dissertation, when I published my dissertation, when I wrote papers and so on, because Crimea and Donbass could have, have the same situation which was in uh, in um, in uh, Transnistria region. And this is what happened uh, after 2014, after violent uh, overthrow of Ukrainian government, which was supported by the Western countries. This led basically to civil war and de facto breakup of Ukraine after Russia uh, annexed Crimea, which was... Uh, supporting Russia, basically joining Russia, according to a variety of public opinion polls, and also started Russia started to support separatists in Donbass. And uh, there was also civil war in Donbass involving Russian separatists, and uh, Russia also sent their military uh, forces in uh, Donbass in support of separatists in uh, in September and August of 2014, and then in the uh, winter of 2015. And this conflict was not resolved. There was a possibility of peaceful resolution, so-called Minsk agreements, which were reached, but they were not implemented. 
And uh, after this uh, Minsk agreements, uh, there were reports, again, there was escalation basically of the conflict in Ukraine and the conflict becoming very dangerous because there was evidence that Russia was preparing to invade Ukraine. And also uh, there was, um, uh, Zelensky basically rejected his uh, election platform, which was based on peace, promise of peace and peaceful resolution of conflict. And he said that um, basically that there would be a military takeover of of um, of Donbass, and uh, and he said also he wanted to return control of Crimea. So this was basically uh, a setting for a very very kind of difficult situation, very dangerous situation. And I was warning about this in my television interviews, in my publications, that there was possibility of war between Russia and Ukraine, real possibility between this war. But I, uh, there was no uh, evidence that Russia wanted to occupy entire Ukraine or wanted to. In, kind of occupy entire Ukraine, but they were interested basically in 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 checking back control, uh, in checking control over um, Donbass, and uh, and also in uh, regions which were uh, southern and eastern regions of Ukraine, which are near Donbass and near right. Crimea. And this is basically yeah. what happened after a Russian invasion in in uh, February of uh, 2022. And what could have been done and should have been done to prevent this from happening? It could have uh, this war, which is devastating to Ukraine and to many other countries, has impacted on many other countries, and people in many other countries could have been prevented. So th this is, uh, I think, uh, was easy to prevent because uh, the conflict between Russia and the West and between Russia and Ukraine was not kind of, um, how to say, incompatible. So there was possibility of peaceful agreement. And Russia wanted to basically, that Ukraine would not become a member of NATO and would not deploy uh, Western military weapons in Ukraine, like missiles and so on. And, uh, and uh, so this was a possibility of such agreement, which could have been e very easy to prevent because uh, Ukraine, in any case, had no real possibility of joining NATO. And Zelensky, after the war started, he, he acknowledged this. He said that privately, he was told by Western government leaders that Ukraine has no chance of uh, basically uh, no chance of becoming a member of NATO. But uh, publicly, they could not do this. They cannot uh, basically reject uh, Ukraine from becoming a member of NATO, from promising that Ukraine would become a member of NATO. And this was, I think, one of the big issues because I proposed before the war that it was possible to give Ukraine uh, kind of another membership in membership in, in the European Union instead of uh, NATO. And in such cases, Russia did not object to European Union membership. And so Ukrainians would basically benefit from this without becoming a member of NATO. But I think because Western governments, they wanted to use Ukraine against Russia. Uh, even before this war. So for them, this was opportunity uh, kind of uh, to weaken Russia and to contain Russia. And this uh, this policy goes back to uh, Western uh, government support for violent overthrow of Ukrainian government in uh, 2014. And uh, and this is kind of meant that now you can become basically a, a tool against Russia and Ukraine is used as a proxy against Russia in this war. 
which is war between Russia and Ukraine, but also war between um, oh, proxy war between West and uh, Russia. And there is also a component of this war which is not much discussed. It's civil war still ongoing in the Ukraine because uh, there are a lot of casualties, uh, separatists basically, or Ukrainian citizens, former Ukrainian citizens, or Ukrainian citizens who live in Donbass, and they are dying uh, basically on the side of Russia as a part of a military of separatist uh, republics, which now recently were annexed by Russia. And why didn't Zelensky want to implement the Minsk Accords? I think there are two reasons, because he won elections with such promise. He won elections with promise of peace. So there was a lot of optimism among Ukrainians because he ran against Poroshenko, who was basically a hardline nationalist. And Poroshenko was the one who signed Minsk agreements. And so Zelensky, when he came to power, basically gave such promise that uh, he would seek peaceful resolution of this conflict. But after he became president, he reversed his position. And there were two reasons for, for doing this. Uh, one was pressure from far right. He could not basically control far right organizations and far right activists who have very significant influence in Ukraine after Maidan. And, and one illustration of this is that he went to frontline to try to kind of convince uh, members of this Azov-led movement, uh, neo-Nazi movement, to leave positions uh, from the frontline as a part of agreement with Russia, to de-escalate situation, to withdraw forces from frontline. And he basically was told, all, he was called all the names by these neo-Nazis in videos, basically saying that he is kind of not very I'm not a real president and so on, calling him his name and so on. Basically, uh, he was um, publicly humiliated with videos posted by neo-Nazi Azov members. And he did nothing. So you have president of Ukraine who goes to frontline to convince uh, members of neo-Nazi-led um, you know, organization of formation to leave positions. So he could not order them. He could not use military force to dismantle them. And the, for this reason, he, this was one of uh, of attacks, and afterwards there were also attacks on presidential administration, in which they, uh, specifically by far right forces who opposed any implementation of Minsk, Minsk agreements, and they even painted swastika on uh, office of uh, Zelensky. So uh-huh. police basically stood by. Police would do nothing, and this is just one illustration. So he could not do anything against far right. So he tried then to basically placate them and to use them and to give them various rewards, to give them support and so on. To he met with them very frequently. So and so basically he uh, declared his capitulation against far right and uh, decided to to use them and to kind of basically uh, to um, uh, integrate them into UK, continue integration into kind of Ukrainian military and security forces and so on. Another reason for the failure of um, of this uh, peaceful possibility of peaceful resolution of this conflict by Zelensky was pressure from the West, in particular from the United States, because uh, US, for the United States, Ukraine was um, primarily a tool against Russia and this would explain why uh, the U.S. government uh, supported this violent overthrow of, or at least de facto supported this violent overthrow of the uh, Yanukovych government in Ukraine in 2014, uh, is to use Ukraine against Russia. So this was kind of basic U.S. policy, uh, which became official policy or de facto policy since 2014, and it's now uh, basically now 
continuation of this policy of the United States government. And uh, recently also um, Merkel, uh, former leader of uh, Germany and former president of France, uh, they yeah. basically stated, all of them stated publicly on uh, Zelensky in uh, this uh, conversation, that uh, they did not want to implement Minsk agreements. That Minsk agreements basically were just to buy time and yeah. to prevent Russia from uh, kind of from taking uh, control over Ukraine. Basically, from uh, at the time after Maidan, when Ukraine Ukrainian forces were relatively weak, and this uh, basically this was uh, kind of just um, temporary solution, which nobody wanted to implement. In particular, uh, Poroshenko and. Uh, at the time when he signed such agreements, but also Merkel and um, and Holland, uh, when they also signed such agreements, and this is also very important because U.S. government has power in Ukraine to basically the, uh, kind of to very significant power, which is quite unprecedented after Maidan, and in particular, there is and I wrote about this in my studies. So, um, so first they uh, basically Biden and other members of U.S. administration like Nuland and so on. They publicly supported this violent overthrow of the Ukrainian government during the Maidan. And uh, afterwards, uh, they also, and before this, uh, even in this uh, phone conversation between Nuland and U.S. ambassador, they also were involved in selection of uh, top Ukrainian officials. Quite openly, this was discussed in Ukrainian media, uh, who uh, who United States government supported for to become prime minister of Ukraine, like Yatsenyuk, after Maidan, and afterwards uh, they supported also like a nomination or selection of um, um, of uh, head of uh, security state security service. Yes, Ukraine. this is this is that famous phone call the, that we played uh, on the show before. It's that famous uh, clip of Victoria Newland talking to the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, and they're basically picking uh, who yes. will be the next. Uh, Yats, exactly. Yats is the guy that he'll be the next leader of Ukraine. And lo and behold, a few weeks later, Yats became the guy. He became the new prime minister in the uh, government, uh, the post-coup government. Yeah, but this is not the only evidence because this was just what uh, became public in the West. Yeah, there were like um, about 10 media reports in the Ukrainian media, which is pro-Western media, which is not pro-Russian media. And this media, like Ukrainska Pravda, and their Kalatizhnya, which are very, very well connected to the Ukrainian government, uh, Maidan government and Maidan politicians, they reported, and also to Western embassies and so on, they reported that basically United States government officials and embassy, they were involved in selection of top Ukrainian officials, like Prime Minister uh, Yasenyuk, which was, he became Prime Minister after Maidan, but also nomination of him after elections, uh, like uh, he was uh, again nominated to be prime minister after Poroshenko won elections, so the United States supported this openly. Like they backed Yatsenyuk uh, and told to kind of Ukrainian government to basically appoint him uh, as prime minister of Ukraine. And afterwards, um, uh, there were reports by the Ukrainian media that um, that um, U- uh, U.S. officials were also supporting uh, specific candidates for position of uh, head of S- security service of Ukraine. Uh, they basically he, he, they uh, they wrote uh, they published uh, um, kind of Ukrainian media reports that um, he was named by uh, he was specifically selected by name by um, U.S. officials. Basically, they told uh, Ukrainian Poroshenko to appoint him as head of uh, security service of Ukraine. So you can just imagine, and this is uh, not uh, again accidental because uh, there was also admission by Biden. Um, in his memoirs, I think not in his memoirs, but in his uh, talk in um, uh, Council for Foreign Affairs, 
that he also told Poroshenko to uh, dismiss uh, basically. Uh, yes, this is the famous clip of Biden where he's uh, talking at the Council on Foreign Relations and he's bragging that he basically threatened Ukraine with uh, that he would withhold a $1 billion loan unless they fired the prosecutor. Incidentally, the same prosecutor who was investigating Burisma, which was the uh, energy company where Hunter Biden, Joe Biden's son, had a uh, board seat. Uh, but Biden says that this has nothing to do with that. But, but regardless, that was an example of Biden bragging about how much influence he had in Ukraine. The fact he could just threaten to withhold uh, some some loans and get somebody fired who he wanted fired. Uh, yes, but in addition to this, afterwards, um, when there were presidential elections in the United States, uh, presidential campaign in the United States, uh, Ukrainian uh, media reported video recordings of uh, an audio recordings of um, phone calls between uh, Biden, uh, who was then vice president of the United States, and Poroshenko, who was president of Ukraine. After Zelensky was elected, such uh, this video, this uh, audio recordings were leaked to Ukrainian politicians, um, kind of uh, who made them public. And in this uh, phone calls, again, which did not get a lot of media coverage in the West. In, uh, there were a few reports in the Western media, but uh, basically they were published and put on the web and, and reported by Ukrainian media. Uh, so here Biden was discussing in this uh, uh, in this audio recordings of uh, of his, um, basically, uh, this audio recording of uh, his phone call with Poroshenko, they discussed um, uh, dismissal of uh, of uh, this prosecutor general of Ukraine, which mm. uh, with Biden uh, admitted later publicly. But yeah. In addition to this, they discussed also appointment a new replacement for basically Biden gave approval for appointment of a replacement to this prosecutor general of Ukraine in his uh, talk to Poroshenko in his phone call with Poroshenko. In addition to this, uh, Biden also gave approval, basically, or he had say in the appointment of a replacement for Yatsenyuk as Prime Minister. Of the Prime Minister, yeah. Yeah, there was a new Prime Minister appointment, and Biden also discussed this replacement with Poroshenko, basically, that he kind of he had also involvement in appointment of another Prime Minister of Ukraine. So this was just one example, uh, kind of, or uh, some examples of, of such um, kind of. Uh, how to say influence of the United States, which is quite unprecedented, and and, and but in addition to this, um, but also very important issue because uh, United States government and other Western governments also had involvement in uh, in key issues of Ukrainian policy, in particular right. during annexation of Crimea by Russia, uh, the U.S. government and uh, and other Western governments, German governments, told Ukrainian government not to interfere with uh, Russian annexation, not to use military force, and this is because there would be war between Russia and Ukraine. And this is what happened. So the Ukrainian government accepted this, and there was no military uh, resistance to Russian annexation of Crimea in 2014. So this is just one example. So I um, I believe that the same influence even now, the dependency of Ukrainian government on the United States is much bigger, because U.S. government basically finances Ukrainian government and uh, provides weapons, provides yep. weapons to yep. Ukrainian government and so on. So, yeah. so now basically Ukraine is client state of the United States, and this right. was also since 2014. And to hear the rest of the interview, please go to usefulidiots.substack.com. That was really an important interview, I think. I agree. I mean, he has so much information, and there's so much complexity to Ukraine. 
And the problem is because our media portrays just a, as he was, as Ivan was talking about, such a one dimensional portrayal of Ukraine. Uh, there's so much history that gets erased. And he's done a mammoth task on his own of uncovering some of the facts about the Maidan massacre and other aspects of Ukraine that are so important to the current events, but are just completely whitewashed. And so that was really great to hear him break yeah. down what he's uncovered and his insight. And and as as we talked about, it's a Ukrainian voice like that. Right. We just don't hear in the West. We just don't. Yeah. So that was a great opportunity. Thanks for setting that up, Aaron, because you've cited his work a lot. Now we got to talk to him. Of course. Yeah, no, he's he's done such important work. And it is true that Ukrainian voices uh, are mostly MIA uh, in um, discussions of the Ukraine war, especially in the U.S. And it's important to hear from someone who actually comes from Ukraine and who understands the country in ways that none of us outside of it can. And there's real insight about it. And and the part that resonated most with me is, is the tragedy of the influence of the far right in Ukraine, which mm-hmm. is not like the majority of the country at all. It's a small percentage, but because of their muscle, basically, right. and because they're backed by the U.S., they played such a major role in shaping policy. So basically, the side of the U.S. right now is not with, I think, the, the majority trends in Ukrainian politics. It's with the far right of Ukraine, the far right that doesn't want to coexist with ethnic Russians of Ukraine and right. wants to ban the Russian language and now ban the Russian uh, Orthodox Church or the or the branch of the, of the Russian Orthodox Church in Ukraine. So anyway, really it's important here. Disproportionately powerful. Absolutely. Yes. 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 And you can be disproportionately powerful if you sign up for our Substack, eastfloydays.substack.com and get the get the power of knowledge that we bring yeah. you every single week. Yeah, but not being but without being far right. Exactly. That's what makes it so great. Yeah. So definitely do that because this full interview with Ivan is really worth listening to. It's such an important voice. So make sure you go to uh, usefulidiots.substack.com. You'll also get our Thursday throwdown where we react to some pretty uh, disturbing, comical, unintentionally comical media clips. And all that and more at usefulidiots.substack.com. And also we had to take, we just had to take off some uh, time because of the holidays and you may have missed us. And in fact, I'm sure you missed us. We'll be back. Uh, Obviously we're back right now, but we'll also be back for Monday mornings. So don't fret. We'll be there at 10 AM EST Eastern standard time Monday with our live uh, Monday morning show followed by a call-in. So see you there at youtube.com slash useful idiots. Don't forget to rate and review us guys. Cause another Prediction I have for 2023 is we were going to dominate Pod Save America. We can only do that when you like us, uh, subscribe to us on YouTube, on Substack, and uh, rate and review us uh, wherever you listen to your podcast. All right. We'll see you next week. Bye, everybody. See you next week. Bye. Hello. Thank you so much for listening to and watching Useful Idiots. For full episodes and extended interviews, please subscribe at usefulidiots.substack.com. You can subscribe on YouTube at youtube.com slash usefulidiots for clips, live streams, and full episodes. Also, subscribe to us wherever you find your podcast. Follow us on Twitter at usefulidiotpod and use the hashtag usefulidiotspod. Join us Mondays at 10 a.m. for the Useful Idiots Monday Morning Show, where we discuss the Sunday morning news shows so you don't have to watch them. 